Thank you, choir. We're in a series during Lent of sermons on the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, the twelve who followed. And in the order in which Jesus called them, we looked at Andrew, who was the first one, two weeks ago, and then last week, Simon Peter. And this morning, the sermon is on James the Greater. Acts 12, 1 through 3 is an unusual passage. There are several passages in the New Testament in which James is mentioned, but there's only one where he is mentioned by himself. And this is it, Acts 12, 1 through 3. It's a sad passage, but I want you to see where James built up and where he, where he finished. Acts 12, 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. This is what happened. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And you remember the story how it goes on in Acts 12. Peter is um, miraculously released from prison. The guards are asleep. And he returns to the room where the other disciples are praying for him. The maid goes to the door and looks out and sees Peter standing there and goes in and says, Peter's at the door and they're praying for his release and they don't believe her. It's really funny. They, they're praying for his release and when he is released, they're surprised. So much like us, I suppose, when we pray. And God hears our prayers and answers them. But James the Greater um, was killed with a sword. And we're going to talk about him this morning. Let's bow together. Father, as we come to look at the apostles, those first to follow Jesus, help us realize that they were just ordinary men with ordinary backgrounds who separated themselves because they left everything to follow. So if we sit on the sideline and think you can't use us because of our flaws and failures, Remind us that that is really the only people whom you do use. So we can make ourselves available for your service. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three prominent men named James in the New Testament. And there is confusion to this day as to which one is which. And I listed them in the outline in your worship bulletin. There is James, the son of Zebedee. There is James, the son of Alphaeus. And there is James, the brother of Jesus. Which one of these three wrote the New Testament book of James? The brother of Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus, were two of the twelve disciples. James, Jesus' brother, was not one of the twelve disciples. You remember there's a passage where uh, his brothers come to get him and try to take him home because they believe he is beside himself, he's lost his mind, he's claiming to be the Messiah. And they criticize him for what he's doing in his lifetime. But James, Jesus' brother, after Jesus' death, becomes a mighty witness for the Lord and uh, ends up writing the New Testament book. James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, were also called the sons of thunder. You remember that? Zebedee had a prominent fishing business on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
His two sons, James and John, work for him, along with Peter and Andrew. And uh, they're all in the fishing business. And apparently Zebedee's business was fairly lucrative because he had several employees, several boats. We can also infer from scriptures, and this is kind of interesting to me, that they, their mother's name, James and John's mother and Zebedee's wife, was named Salome. And let me show you how we piece that together. It comes from Matthew 27, verse 56. It talks about the women who were there when Jesus died and then come to anoint His body. Matthew 27, 56 says, Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And that's James and Joseph. I think the brothers of Jesus. That's probably Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Matthew 27, 56 was one of the three women. Now flip over to Mark 16, 1. Don't y'all find this fascinating? When you put the pieces together, Mark 16, 1 says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, we read about in Matthew 27, 56, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. So here the mother of James and, and uh, John is specifically identified as Salome. There is some speculation that she was even the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that means James and John were Jesus' cousins. The other James, the son of Alphaeus, was called James the Less, making James the brother of John. You remember John is the beloved disciple. We'll look at him next week. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he was called James the Greater. Now it might have been because he was bigger or taller or followed Jesus earlier, but James of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, was called James the Greater, and James the son of Alphaeus was called James the Lesser. Over time, James the brother of John became one of the three in his inner circle. Do you remember who they were? Peter, James, and John. But of the three, he is, we know least about James. He is the least familiar to us. He rarely appears standalone in the Scriptures, in the Gospels. He's almost always paired with his younger brother John, the beloved disciple. The only time he appears by himself is here in Acts 12, verses 1 through 3, where his death is recorded for us. There's some characteristics of James that we can pick out, though, from the instances in the New Testament where he is mentioned, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. The first thing about James is his rashness. If you have one word that you want to use to describe James, it would be the word passionate. Because James was one of the sons of thunder. Jesus said, you are Boanerges, Boanerges, which means son of thunder, embodying his character. When you're the son of somebody, that means you embody the character of the father. Son of thunder means you embody the characteristics of thunder. James was zealous and passionate and thunderous and fervent for the gospel. And I expect Jesus nicknamed him Thunder in a humorous sort of way to kind of keep him in check. I don't think Son of Thunder was necessarily complimentary. I think Jesus called that with a smile on his face and saying, Son of Thunder, calm down now. Take it easy. It's going to be okay. 
Because James and John, the sons of thunder, were always ready to, to go and do something and take action and, and, and wipe somebody out, whatever the cost. That's what they were all about. And here's an example. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, James and John and the disciples and Jesus are going through Samaria. It says in Luke chapter 9, I'm going to flip over to that, verse 51, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, you know what's going to happen when he gets there. But it says several times, he set his face. And when Jesus set his face to do something, nothing is going to deter him. Many times the Jews who were traveling from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south had to go through Samaria, which is in the middle. Sometimes, though, I'm going to have to turn around because my directions so you can follow. They would go to the east, which was over the Jordan River through the desert. To the west was the Mediterranean Sea. So either they, if they didn't want to go through Samaria, which was in the middle, they had to go by ship or crossing the Jordan River through the desert and the mountains to get down to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, and so he goes straight through Samaria, where he finds out they aren't welcome. Jesus, in Luke 9, 51 through 56, when the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for them. But the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Do you know the story of the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews? When the Jews were carried off, it was the leadership of the Jews, the educated of the Jews, who were carried off into captivity in Babylon when Babylon uh, captured the Jewish nation. Those that were left behind did not keep the Jewish religion pure. They intermarried with pagans, they brought in pagan religion, and it affected the Jewish attitude toward them. So much so that the Jews looked at them as half-breeds. They were no longer pure-blood Jews. And so the, they were called Samaritans, intermarrying Jews with those in the surrounding villages and, and religions. So when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, what it reminded the Samaritans is they weren't welcome in Jerusalem. Because they were not pure Jewish anymore, they could not worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and so they built a temple of their own called Mount Gerizim in the north. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and I imagine the Samaritans are thinking, yes, we aren't welcome in Jerusalem, and you aren't welcome here among us. And so James and John say, let us call down fire from heaven and consume them. Some translations add, as Elijah did. Now there's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 1 where Elijah calls down fire in this same vicinity. Do you want to know the story? Can you be a little more enthusiastic about it? Because I'm going to tell you whether you want to hear it or not. Elijah, there's a king, Ahaziah, and he is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. 
Do you remember Ahab and Jezebel and the hatred they had for Elijah and the, the contest on Mount Carmel calling down fire to consume the sacrifice and Elijah pouring water and Jezebel says, if this day goes down, the sun goes down without me killing Elijah, may, may I be dead. And so she pursues, and so there's hatred between Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. Well, Ahab and Jeze Ahab dies. Ahaziah comes to the throne. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 1. Don't read it now. Read it when you get home. Ahaziah, it says, very specific details. He falls through some lattice in the palace, and he has internal injuries. And he asks his messengers to go to Beelzebul, which is their pagan god, to inquire of him whether he is going to die. Beelzebul, incidentally, is translated Lord of the Flies, which shows what they worship. So the messengers go from Ahaziah on the way to Beelzebul to inquire if the king is going to die, and they run into Elijah. And Elijah says, why are you going to Beelzebul? Is there not a prophet in your own country of the Lord? You go and tell Ahaziah that yes, he's going to die. So the messengers go back and tell Ahaziah that. And he said, who told you that? And they said, Elijah told us. And he said, well, he doesn't like me anyway. You go and get Elijah and you bring him to me. So he sends a captain of a guard and 50 soldiers. Isn't this interesting? The captain of the guard and 50 soldiers to Elijah to, to capture him and bring him back to Ahaziah. And Elijah's not hiding. He is sitting on top of a hill waiting for them. And the captain of the guard and his 50 soldiers say, Elijah, you come with us. And he says, Lord, if I am a prophet of you and if you are the true God, send down fire from heaven and consume these soldiers. And bam, all 50 are consumed by fire. Word gets back to Ahaziah. Guess what he does? He sends another captain and 50 soldiers to get Elijah. And Elijah's sitting there and he says, Lord, if I am your prophet, send down fire from heaven and consume these soldiers. Bam! Lightning comes down with fire and they are consumed. This is all in the Bible. I'm not making this up. Ahaziah sends a third captain and 50 soldiers, but this captain is smarter than the first two. And he comes humbly to Elijah and he says, Elijah, have mercy on this captain and on these soldiers. We beg of you, we entreat you to come with us to King Ahaziah. And Elijah inquires the Lord, and the Lord says, Yes, Elijah, you go with them and you tell them, you tell King Ahaziah what I told you to say. So Elijah accompanies them. He goes before the king and he says, The word of the Lord is that you shall die of your injuries. And Ahaziah promptly dies. So that's the reference that James and John are referring to when they're going through this same area where Elijah called down fire from heaven on the pagans. They're saying, can we do it on the Samaritans? And Jesus says, no. My mission is different from that of Elijah. I came not to destroy men, but to seek and to save that which was lost. And it says they went on to another village and found accommodations. And incidentally, by the time Acts 8 comes around, Philip is in Samaria, and he's preaching in this same area and I, I would wager that some of those who heard Philip's sermon and were saved, it says in Acts 8, 5, that many who heard Philip's message in Samaria were saved. And I would think that some who heard that message and saved were some of the same ones that James and John wanted to call fired on, down on and consumed.
Jesus wanted them saved. He didn't want them wiped out. But that's the rash, impetuous James. But now there's also the ambitious James. Matthew 20, verses 20 through 24. This is where they want the seats of prominence. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, who's, who, what's her name? Salome. Remember we put those two verses together from Matthew and Mark at the cross? The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? And she said, command that these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? And they said, I'm thinking boldly, we are able. He said, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. So the mother of James and John is Salome. You remember who's her husband? Zebedee. He's a wealthy fisherman. Perhaps he has enough wherewithal that she can accompany her sons and be among the party that follows Jesus and ministers to him in need and has resources to help buy food when necessary and, and just follow along, be in that entourage and minister as needed. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is telling them that there will be 12 thrones in heaven and they will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And James and John and their mom are sitting there thinking, now if there are going to be 12 thrones, there are going to be two beside Jesus. And those are going to be the most important. So I want to sit on his right hand and my brother sit on his left hand. Why not ask? What have you got to lose? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking when you want to sit at my right and left. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink, be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized Jesus was trying to tell them there's going to be some suffering on the way to glory. And they say, Lord, we're able. Now the ten disciples are indignant, and I don't think they're indignant because James and John shot the gun on them. I think they were indignant that they didn't think of it first. And they're still arguing over who's the greatest when they get to the Lord's Supper. And Jesus has to give them a lesson on Greatness being defined by servanthood by wrapping a, a towel around him and taking a basin and washing their feet. Ironically, about 14 years later, James does have a place of prominence, but it's with his martyrdom. And that's what we read about this morning. Jesus is preparing James for that, though, because several times he takes Peter and James and John, that inner circle, that inner three with him, to do special things. He has him with him in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. You remember we learned last week that Peter was the only apostle to be married because he had a mother-in-law. That scripture reference in your bulletin is wrong. That's supposed to be Mark 1.29, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Mark 5.37 is where Jesus takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, with him as he raises the synagogue official's daughter from the dead. You remember He's on his way. The synagogue official comes to Jesus and on the way a woman with an issue of blood touches his garment and is healed. And then by that time the girl is dead and he goes into the inner room and takes Peter, James, and John with him and he, they see her raised from the dead. 
Those three are with him at the transfiguration, the mount in Matthew 17, where Jesus is transformed and they see him talking to Elijah and Moses. And then they're with Jesus in Gethsemane. All the disciples except Judas, of course, come to pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John a bit further and says, watch and pray with me. And so all this time, Jesus is preparing James the healing of the mother-in-law, the raising of the synagogue official's daughter to show that he has power of life over death. The transfiguration to show James that there is glory beyond suffering. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, to show James that there is agony on the way to the throne. All three of these are preparing James for what's going to happen to him in our scripture this morning. Acts 12, James' life is cut short. He is the first one to be martyred. And incidentally, he's only one of two apostles whose death is recorded in scripture. We know that all the other apostles were martyred except John, his brother, who lived to an old age of 90 and was able to write the gospel, the three letters, and the book of Revelation. All the others were martyred. James was the first. Who's the other apostle whose death was mentioned in Scripture? Judas. That's right. Those are the only two that, that are, whose death is recorded in Scripture. It says here in our Scripture that Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. This is not Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist and then presided at the trial of Jesus. He's already dead, and his nephew, Herod Agrippa I, has come to the throne. And his throne is as tenuous as his uncle's was, because remember, he um, collaborates with the Romans, but he's still a Jew, and so he's not trusted by either one. And so in order to appease the Jews, to keep them pacified, he persecutes the Christians. And uh, so that's what he's doing. He's trying to keep the Jews pacified and uh, persecuting Christians. And it says he killed James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, with the sword. Early church tradition has it that as James was being led to be martyred with the sword, incidentally, what type of death is that? It's beheading. It's being led to be beheaded and his executioner who was escorting him is so moved by the testimony and witness of James that he turns and asks James forgiveness and professes his own faith in Jesus Christ. He asks James forgiveness and James says, peace be with thee, and he kisses him. And then the two of them are beheaded together. And so James the Elder, James the Greater, who early on wanted to call down fire from heaven on unbelievers, in the end was the one who was gently and graciously, even walking toward his death, bringing people to faith in Christ. Early passion and zeal and fervor became tempered with sensitivity and love and grace. 
And that's what God is able to do with anybody who has a burning zeal for the Lord under the control of the Holy Spirit. God can use. God can do more with burning zeal than He can with cold compromise. A wise old preacher used to say, and I've written this down for you, it's easier to tone down a fanatic than it is to raise a corpse. Because someone who has zeal for the Lord may go overboard, but God has something to work with. And God, under the control of the Holy Spirit, can use this individual to do great things for him, but someone who is compromising and cold and dead, God can do nothing with. The life of James is proof that it's easier to tone down a fanatic than it is to raise a corpse. Will you bow with me? Father, as we come to the time of decision, I thank you that there were men who followed you whose lives we have outlined in Scripture and from bits and pieces can put together someone who who was not perfect and whose mistakes were not glossed over. But you still managed to work through and use in a mighty way even in death, witnessing and bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for using ordinary people because that means you might be able to use some of us. We're nothing special. We've made mistakes and we have failed. But with forgiveness, symbolized by baptism, experienced daily in the life walking with you, confessing. We make ourselves available and pray that you'll use us in Jesus' name. Amen.